Welcome back to the All Things Strength and Wellness Podcast. I am your host, as always, Robbie Burke. And before we get into today's show, I just want to give a shout out to all of the show's sponsors. Firstly, upmentorship.com, which is one of the top strength and conditioning resources available online today. The Ultimate Performance Online Mentorship is 20 hours of top-class strength and conditioning information available for instant access right at your fingertips. To find out more, head over to upmentorship.com, which is linked up in the show notes, check it out, and help support the show. Next, I want to give a shout out to Altus360 and Altus Education, which are two outstanding online resources for any practitioner in the sports preparation profession. Be sure to head over to the show notes and check out these unique platforms. Next, I want to give a shout out to Yosef Johnson at Ultimate Alley Concepts. Ultimate Alley Concepts is a multifaceted company providing the most sophisticated scientific material in sports science. Ultimate Alley Concepts is the world's leading resource for translated sports preparation material. Next, I want to give a shout out to Papi's National Sports Performance Association, which is an online certification platform for professionals within the sports preparation profession. Currently, the NSPA has four certifications available. Speed and Agility, delivered by Lee Taft. Olympic Weightlifting, delivered by Will Fleming. Nutrition, delivered by Dr. Chris Moore. And Program Design, delivered by Coach Robert Dos Remedios. For more information on the NSPA, be sure to check out all of the links in the show notes. Finally, I want to thank another brainchild of Pat Beef's, Athletes Acceleration, which is another online medium that delivers excellent educational resources for strength and conditioning professionals. And just like with all of our other sponsors, head over to the show notes to get the links to all of the available products that Athletes Acceleration has to offer. A full disclosure, except for Altus360 and Altus Education, I am an affiliate to all of the show sponsors. Lastly, before we get into today's interview, I just want to let all the listeners know that the podcast is now on Patreon. If you feel that you are in a position to support the show, I would truly appreciate any donations you'd be willing to make to help support the podcast. Okay, that's enough rambling from me. Let's get into today's show. This episode's guest is Dr. Brad Schoenfeld. Brad is an assistant professor in the exercise science department at Lehman College in the Bronx in New York and acts as a director of their human performance laboratory. Brad earned his master's degree in kinesiology and exercise science from the University of Texas and his PhD at Rocky Mountain University, where his dissertation focused on elucidating the mechanisms of muscle hypertrophy and their application to resistance training. Brad has published over 100 peer-reviewed research articles, that's a lot, on exercise and sports nutrition, many in high-impact factor journals, as well as several textbook chapters. He acts as an assistant editor-in-chief of the NSEA's Strength and Conditioning Journal, as well as serving on the editorial advisory board for the Journal of International Society of Sports Nutrition and the Journal of Strength and Conditioning Research. Brad is the best-selling author of multiple fitness books, including The Max Muscle Plan, which has widely been referred to as the Muscle Building Bible, Strong and Sculpted, which details a cutting-edge body sculpting program targeted to females, and Brad has also authored the seminal textbook, Science and Development of Muscle Hypertrophy, the first text devoted to an evidence-based eludication of the mechanisms and strategies for optimizing muscle growth. In total, Brad's books have sold over half a million copies. That's a lot. 
On this episode, Brad and I discuss Brad's background and his influences. What are the good and not so good things that Brad currently sees within the physical preparation and sports science professions? And what solutions would he offer for the not so good things that he currently sees? I asked Brad about the role of muscle damage when it comes to hypertrophy. I asked Brad about training volume prescription for hypertrophy. I asked Brad about hypertrophy adaptations from training with lighter loading schemes. I asked Brad about the role that time under tension per set plays within hypertrophy training. I asked Brad for his take on rest periods and hypertrophy training. I asked Brad about the role of loaded stretching and hypertrophy gains. I asked Brad for his opinion and take on hyperplasia. Does it actually happen in humans? I asked Brad about the truth about myofibular versus sacroplasmic hypertrophy. I asked Brad about training to failure and is it really necessary to maximize hypertrophy gains? I asked Brad about his thoughts on concurrent training. I asked Brad for his thoughts on Dr. Michael Scally's work with testosterone. I asked Brad about what have been the biggest lessons he's learned so far in his life. I asked Brad for his top resources. I asked Brad for his top and current book recommendations. I asked Brad, how does he learn? I asked Brad if he only had one year left on planet Earth, how would he spend that year and why? And finally, as always, I asked Brad the big question. If he could invite five people to dinner, dead or alive, who'd he invite and why? Guys, this was a great episode with Brad and I hope you really, really enjoy it. Okay, Brad Schoenfeld, thank you so much for coming on and making time for me today. I really, truly appreciate it. Just for the listeners who may not be too familiar with who you are, which will be nobody, uh, but just fill us in on your background. Um, not sure where to start, but I was a uh, personal trainer for many years. Uh, worked with a lot of physique athletes. My worked with a lot of athletes in general, but my primary focus was on bodybuilders, uh, figure competitors. And um, as of 2010, I went into academia full-time, currently a a professor, assistant professor at uh, Lehman College. I'm also the head of their uh, human performance lab. I carry out uh, a lot of research studies. I've carried out over 150 or published over 150 peer-reviewed papers. I've written a number of books. uh, I write articles for many uh, consumer sites. I lecture internationally, and uh, basically I'm an educator. My, my goal in life is to educate, and in particular, about the uh, nuances and evidence-based practice of fitness. Per- prolific is the word they use. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I'll have <laughs> all that. Is, is my goal, so yeah. yeah. I'll have all that linked up in the show notes, uh, no doubt. Just th- th- digging a little bit deeper into your background, like, did, like how did you get like so obsessed with uh hypertrophy with training with just all aspects of of just getting jacked basically and also did you play sport growing up you're from new york originally is that correct correct uh yeah i played sports i was really into baseball in particular uh, as a kid uh that kind of waned when i got into my early teens uh and how did i get into hypertrophy my obsession really with hypertrophy came from being a skinny fat kid uh, i was just really thin and um just very little muscle. And when I found resistance training, it basically changed my mm. changed my life. It changed how I felt about myself, how I looked at myself, my self-esteem. And when once I got bitten by that bug, I then wanted to help others achieve that same feeling. It kind of became a, a passion of mine to say, hey, this was the coolest thing in the world for me. 
it's got to be cool for other people and uh, so on. It's progressed. And over time, I've gotten, as I guess you and, and most of the listeners would know, much more involved in the scientific end. I started out really as a total bro reading the Joe Weider magazines. And I quickly realized, and I wouldn't even say so quickly, but I, in short order, did come to realize that that was not the best. Just following the routines of your IFBB pros was not necessarily the way that I would get maximize my own potential. Yeah. So I uh, then said, you know what, there has to be a better way. Started getting the science of it, and this is where I am. Sounds like uh, me and you are in the same club, the Skinny Fat Club. I can uh, I can resonate with that. <laughs> I'm still in the Skinny Club. Um, that's great stuff. So, Brad, uh, another question I like to ask all the guests is about their influences. So, who would you say have been the biggest influences on you, not only professionally, but also personally? Well, the biggest influence on me was my father. Not necessarily as far as exercise goes per se, but from a scientific... My father was a physician, cardiologist, and he uh, imparted to me the scientific method from a very early age, and that, that stuck with me. So, basically, my entire... Who I am as a scientist is based on my father's preachings. As far as within the exercise field, I've had a number of influences of the late Mel Siff, who wrote the book Super Training, was a big influence on me in terms of getting me more to understand how to, how to take an evidence-based approach, not how to look at research and then draw practical inferences from it. Uh, he was really giving in terms of how he... Uh, helped mentor me in the early, very early years. Um, I've had so many that have been influenced by, and, and I would say now my colleagues, uh, Brett Contreras and Alan Aragon are two huge influences in the, in the sense that we discuss fitness all the time and both of them constantly force me to reanalyze my beliefs and, uh, and never to, uh, and to always keep pushing forward to never just, uh, get comfortable in my own zone. So uh, those two are, are huge influences. Yeah, I never knew that about your father, that he was a cardiologist. So I could definitely see how that stood you well, because you are definitely someone who, who is evidence-based. But, uh, oh, man, I would have loved to have met Mel Siff. I'm very good friends with Joel Jameson, and he said he actually spent time in his house with him. I don't know if you did as well. But I Joel- did all my, so it's interesting. All of my uh, dealings with Mel were online. Yeah. I mean, I, when I, well, I spoke to him. I spoke to him on the telephone a couple of times, but virtually all our discussions were in writing. Yeah, yeah. Joel, uh, Joel just said he was nuts. He said he was crazy. And there, um, there's the Swift conference, the Swiss conference that um, Ken Kanakam puts on, and like he has his whole video library. And he was selling the whole video library one day and I was going through and I was like, Mel safe. I was like, I've never seen him present. So I was like, I'm just going to buy this just to even see Mel present. And then I saw and I was just like, oh, it's just legendary. So he was so funny. He even brought like Dr. Eric Serrano up on stage to do a demonstration and he had no idea who Eric was. It was just, it was just hilarious to watch. But uh, yeah, Mel's just a, a genius. And also with Brett, I, I, I'm very good friends with Brett and got to spend time with him and I can attest to that too. Like we were just like in his house like 10 at night and all he just talks about is just training. So it was just great. Super Pat, both Brett and Alan, just super passionate guys, oh. uh, super uh, evidence-based in terms of understanding the importance of research, but also understanding the practical ends. Both of them have been personal trainers, have uh, worked, they're, they're not just geeky scientists, they actually have worked in the field. So they have a very good balance of being a professional, a, a practitioner professional, and a researcher uh, educator. So 
and and so giving too in terms of the content they put out like uh, i was speaking to dr andy galpin yesterday and and you just like you look at the likes of Brett Contreras, you look at the likes of he mentioned you, Brad Schoenfeld, Alan Aragon, and I was saying like Greg Knuckles too. Like the the amount and quality content that you guys have put out is just phenomenal and for free. Like it's uh, we're very blessed in some ways with the technology nowadays. Thank you, uh, Brad. Before we get into our main topic, which would be around hypertrophy, um. I just want to ask you about what, what are the good and the not so good things that you currently see within the whole fitness profession and with the not so good things, what sort of solutions would you offer? Well, the, the internet certainly is a mixed bag. So what's good is that we now have the ability to deliver high quality content to within a matter of seconds to millions and millions of people. The bad side is we have the ability to deliver content to millions and millions of people, but we have the ability to deliver bad content. So uh, I, I think really what the biggest issue I see is that there's completely no regulation as there can't really be on the internet for these types of things. So most people don't know where to get their information from and it's the wild west at this point as far mm. as what's out there. So you're getting information that is completely contradictory where people then start saying, well, I don't know what the heck to do. And this person says a keto diet's the best. And this person says a little fast, the best. And this person says Mediterranean diet's the best. And this person, whatever, as you can see, goes on and on. With training, same thing. You get all sorts of um, sometimes sane, sometimes not so sane ideas as to what, how to train and, and, um, Anyway, but bottom line is is that until we get, and I'm not sure you can, I think it's part of the part of what we have to deal with for the free exchange of ideas. Mm. But uh, I, I think if anything, I was going to say until we get more, uh, even regulation is the wrong word, but so, somehow um, a, a consolidation of ideas to uh, of, of better ideas where it kind of weeds out. I'm not sure you can do that, but I think at this point the idea or the goal would be to, edu to hopefully educate people so they are knowledgeable enough to know where to go for the right information yeah definitely yeah. to try and try and help people become more critically minded there, there's a good mentor of mine brian walsh dr brian walsh um and he said a great thing one time at a seminar he he said to the audience he goes you know you never want to be closed-minded everyone in the audience is like oh of course of course and he goes but you don't want to be open-minded and everyone was real kind of like uh, getting confused and he goes you want to be critically minded he's like there's a big difference between being open-minded and critically minded so i always I, I, uh, I agree totally and to me the word is skeptical yeah open-minded but you should be skeptical so yeah. uh, you should always be open to changing your ideas but you should always be skeptical of what people are putting out and, and challenging absolutely perfect yeah absolutely um so getting into our main topic hypertrophy which uh which you are the, the og of at this stage you know we're talking about Brad, dr brad schoenfield for years to come like brad schoenfield like everybody in their powerpoint will have like the og of hypertrophy and the first question i wanted to ask was where are we with the understanding now of muscle damage because i know in your seminal paper there were the three mechanisms mechanical tension metabolic stress and muscle damage and you know, some people are coming out saying now that we're not too sure about the role muscle damage is playing in hypertrophy. So where is the current thinking on this and, and what, are, what are you saying? So I can only give you my own perspective, but in my mind, we're no different than we were when I wrote the mechanisms of muscle hypertrophy almost a decade ago. Um, we just don't know. It's, uh, it, 
it has a good, what I would say is there is a, certainly a good logical rationale for muscle damage playing a role. So look, so uh, a couple of things. Number one, anyone that thinks that muscle damage is the driving force or even the major driving force in hypertrophy, that, that I would say with a good degree of confidence is the case. It's just mm, not. Mm. So the question really becomes, does muscle damage contribute to hypertrophy? And like I had mentioned, there is a good logical rationale for it because I laid them out in, in a, uh, first of all, in my, in brief in the mechanisms paper, but then I, I wrote an entire review paper on that topic and laid out all the potential ways where it can potentially uh, lend, lend or enhance the effects of hypertrophy and whether they actually are happening in, uh, in vivo and in, in, in actual training in practice is anyone's guess. Well, I wouldn't say anyone's guess. You, you can, you can make a, I think what, what a good scientist does is to make cautious uh, interpretations based upon that. So you say, well, there is a good logical basis. We don't, we, the problem with muscle damage is you just can't study uh, mm -hmm. or, or you can't study it for causality because every time you try to change something, so heavier loads, we, you know, have an effect on, uh, on hypertrophy, uh, on muscle damage, but then you'd have to study them against very light loads and, and without, but they can have damage if you're taking them to failure. So again, you get these confounding issues. Eccentric training uh, has effects, but you get a repeated bout effect, which diminishes that. Uh, so you have change your exercise. Well, that changing exercises certainly will continue to have a role with muscle damage, but then you have a confounding if it shows an effect. Is that because of the differences in just the novelty or is it in the damage itself? So trying to tease out damage as a, as a causal effect is just extremely difficult. And what I would say is, is that um, even the term damage, it was funny, we were just having a discussion online and Twitter about this with some pretty knowledgeable people. And uh, one of the people made a good point is that how do you even define damage? So is it, I would certainly say if you're gonna get a lot of damage, like Z-line streaming, you've got streaming of the Z-line, disc in the uh, sarcomeres, that would have a negative effect. Very, a lot of damage is, if nothing else, it prevents you from being able to train properly. Which isn't gonna, if you're not, if you, if you can't train well for six days after a training session, well, how are you gonna grow? Yeah. So, um, but small micro tears within fibers, how is that being measured? What's your markers of, of measurement? Uh, again, I think there is good a logical basis for it, but whether it occurs in practice, I can't say, and, and here's the other thing I will say, some of the people that are claiming that somehow they seem to have the idea or, or that they now can claim it doesn't, are citing papers that weren't designed to study the topic. So unless you can have a paper that actually is able to draw causality, you're, you can hold up a paper and say, hey, look, this is a paper that they claim it showed muscle damage didn't affect. Well, it did. That's the, if you actually look at the way the study was designed, it didn't, uh, it didn't properly tease out those, that, uh, the causality of that effect. And without doing that, like I said, I, don't, I cannot fathom a good way to go about that. And neither can the people that I've spoken to who try to brainstorm ways of doing something, trying to study it. It's just the topic. Mechanisms are very difficult to study. Yeah. And so would the current thinking be that it's just more, it's just more of a correlation with hypertrophy rather than a causative factor in like, kind of like, you know, there's a fire and every time we see the fire, there's a fire brigade there. But no, 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 no. I mean, because that would imply that it doesn't have cause out. I mean, what I would say is it's just not, it hasn't been studied in a way to draw. Okay. Cause out. Yeah. Yeah. So what I would say is, is that there is a lot of, 
there's a lot of underlying factors that damage promotes. I mean, it increases satellite cell recruitment. Satellite cells are involved. So mm -hmm. that is a, a correlative aspect. You're, basically, you're trying to tie together things. It's like a, if you're a lawyer, which I'm not, but if I was, if you're, if you're prosecuting a murder case and you don't have a, you didn't have a video of the person with the gun shooting someone, you try to string together. Well, he was in this place at this time. Yeah. Anyway, you would string together all other factors that potentially can go into it. And you try, even if it's not beyond a reasonable doubt, at least you try to add up all the evidence and say, does this actually make sense? And is there reasons to think it doesn't? So uh, that's really all I can say. I think that we need to be very cautious about drawing conclusions one way or the other. So like I said, certainly I don't, I'm not here saying that there is an effect. I think that if there is, it would be modest, mm. but I think that there certainly is the potential for an additive effect. And just before we move off this topic, do you have any ideas of, of how research could go about getting a better answer to this question in, in terms of research sure. design? I just said, we've, I've, I don't, and I've tried to brainstorm with some very smart uh, colleagues of mine. And uh, there's just too many, again, the, when you try to tease out from a mechanistic standpoint, you, you bring other confounding factors right. that prevent the ability to draw causality. Yeah. So if you're going to have to design something, let's say I'm going to say, all right, well, I know that changing exercises tends to keep muscle damage somewhat higher. You're going to have more of a novel response. You're not going to get a repeated bad effect. So if you do that, so I'd say, all right, we're going to have one group just trains the same all the time versus a group that's doing all different exercises. Well, someone has done that and shown more hypertrophy uh, in the legs, they did multiple exercises for the legs versus one, but was that due to greater damage or was that due to just the fact that the, there was greater stimulation from mm. the different exercises? Yeah, yeah. Can't tease that out. So yeah. that's where we're back to square one of them. And I suppose most of the bros will be like, I don't care. We're just getting bigger. <laughs> but us, us scientists are like, we still want to know. Um, your book, The, the, uh, the Science Development of Muscle Hypertrophy is fantastic book and it, i love the way you, you just laid it out in the chapters it's just it's uh i just i if i was to write a book it would have been very similar the way you just laid it out you know every chapter you know volume then into intensity and just you know it was beautifully laid out and the way you did each chapter in terms of the research and then you gave a practical applications at the end which is again just uh thought a very very intelligent way of delivering the information um when we get into volume um very similar to what eric wrote eric helms wrote about in his uh his manuals um, you know, this kind of 40 to 70 range. And again, listen, everyone is so individual, but uh, where, where are we on volume? Are we still in that kind of very 47 per muscle group and two to three times a week seems to be a good estimate for most people to start? I don't like to look at it. You know, I respect Erica immensely. I think he's an excellent fitness professional, researcher, practitioner. Um, and I've I've published papers with Eric. Actually, one of them was a bodybuilding paper where I mm. uh, I ascribed to that. But I, I mean, here's what I, my current thinking. Um, I, I don't like to look at it that you prescribe in that type of basis. First of all, I, I will tell you there's new evidence coming out from our lab that shows that kind of blows that out of the water. Cool. But even with that, I, I think the more important way to look at something is not that you should just be staying in the same zone that like to me i think volume is something that can and should be pushed and i'm getting i've used this a lot uh, in working with private clients and in, in consult with very high level uh, physique athletes particularly bodybuilders 
Um, and my philosophy has been, and it's worked very well, and then now some of the research at least seems to suggest that this bears out, is to have training segmented into blocks where you progress from lower volumes to higher volumes. And uh, I don't necessarily like if you're, first of all, doing a repetitions, you'd have to then make it based upon a moderate rep protocol that you're doing eight to 12 reps all the time or something, maybe six to 12, whatever. Because if you're doing three reps, you can actually do 70 reps of three sets, uh, three, three reps. How many sets is that going to take to do? And if you're doing high reps, you can do two sets and get to 70 reps, which is two sets. So it doesn't, and the repetitions are all not equal. So mm-hmm. the, what you're doing at a 30-rep a set, the first few reps are not, you don't get the same stimulus as you do in the first few reps of a seven-rep set or eight-rep set. So I, again, I think it more, uh, it's a very cloudy issue or a cloudy topic to try to, Crystallized, but I would say that it, my what I would say is if you look at it just from a set perspective, and there is some if you're talking at least like in the six to twenty range, you can probably talk uh, in terms of the sets. You can equate them set wise, and not even have to look at it in terms of reps. And that actually a new paper just came out uh, showing that. Uh, I think that the number of sets per muscle group can be much higher for short periods of time. Mm. uh, So people can tolerate for brief periods, very high volumes, and then they need to deload and then even go back. So I think the way, and the way that I've approached it, and this is, just would be extremely difficult to study because I need to have a six month or so trial and you're just not going to, I can't, can't carry out a study like that. You can't get subjects that, uh, uh, that would be there for six months. So it's just not going to happen. Unless you're on a Navy, one of my colleagues uh, works with the Brazilian Navy. I know they've done six-month studies because they had people on ships. They're soldiers on the ships, and they they keep them there in a college environment that doesn't work. But anyway, that's kind of where I'm at uh, on volume as far as that goes, that uh, having much higher volumes for short periods of time, pushing volume, and then having lower and moderate periods of volume sprinkled in, so you're basically going from segmenting from one block to another, pushing it towards a uh, a um, non a functional overreaching standpoint. You don't want to be in an overtrained standpoint, but where you're functionally overreached and then pulling back. Yeah, and again, like there's so much more context too that we could put around. That. I mean, like what muscle groups are we talking about? Like the size muscle group. Then obviously yes. to the to the individual person themselves, like you know their genetics, their fiber type makeup, their training status, their nutritional oh. status. So there's there's so much to go into it. But uh, you you oh. know you, you know yourself. Everyone's like, just tell me the answer, and it's like, well, we don't have an answer. We could give a very vague, vague guideline because we just can't get enough subjects or the money or the research. And even if we did, again, there's too many confounding variables. Exactly. Even if you did the uh, research, one of my pet sayings is that research is never going to tell you what to do. It just provides general guidelines and from there you need to customize it. And that's why, that's where the good fitness pros come in. If you're a good Mm. fitness pro, you need to use your own ingenuity. You have to understand the research, but then your personal experience and the needs and the abilities of the individual are going to ultimately dictate what, what is given to that individual. So next thing, talk to me about, Brad, I was told for a long time that, you know, light, light weights don't make you big, but uh, apparently that's incorrect. 
Yeah, so we've actually carried out a, a number of studies on that, and so have uh, several of my colleagues. And I think, and we've done a meta analysis now, and the evidence is very clear that you can grow substantially and probably as well as you can with lighter loads, provided that the sets are very challenging. Mm. Now, there is a uh, there is some evidence that there might be fiber type specific differences where you might get higher type one fiber development with um, lighter loads and higher type two fiber development with heavier loads. That's still a hypothesis that needs to be refuted or confirmed. But outside of that, uh, certainly you can, the spectrum of loading ranges, what I would say there used to be the uh, hypertrophy continuum, which mm. was like six to 12 reps, that kind of magical hypertrophy range. Really the, the continuum starts at one ride. Technically you're not gonna be able to get the volume in, but provided you're getting sufficient volume, you can achieve hypertrophy across a very wide spectrum of loading zones. And we actually just have a paper that was published about six months or so ago, where we quantified that um, a lower threshold, when you start getting really, really light, like we looked at 20% versus 40% one arm, when it was at 20%, then the hypertrophy was blunted, even when going to failure. So there is a lower threshold. It doesn't mean you could just yeah. do the pink dumbbells all day. And, uh, but at some point, uh, you will see diminishing returns. But certainly with weights much lighter than had been thought, you can see very robust gains. And that probably is somewhere the lower threshold probably exists somewhere around 30% or so of 1RM. Those, uh, the, 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 the pink dumbbells get an awful time. And Danny, what I'm going to do is I'm going to spray the 60 kilos pink. Yeah. <laughs> um, that's great stuff so the next thing I just want to touch on was this one actually when I first got into the field everyone was talking about time under tension you know Poliquin has that chart look there's functional versus non-functional and if you're doing strength it's under 20 seconds and you know a lot of people have kind of spoken about listen there's more to it again than just time under tension but in your book you speak about like there was there was very little difference between like half a second, even up to six seconds, I believe for a rep. I could be wrong and you can correct me on that, but where is the current thought process around this time and retention concept? First of all, time under, so now you're, that's, you're kind of conflating two things. You're talking about a repetition duration, not the set duration. So okay. the time under tension generally is, at least in the literature that I've seen and with the people like Poliquin, they're talking about set duration, not repetition duration. Yeah. Uh, so, Repetition duration is somewhat is a really somewhat different animal. We talk about tempo, yeah, yeah. But as far as the time under tension of of a set having an ideal time under tension, uh, there is no evidence of that. So okay. I mean, I've carried out studies showing that three reps, a three rep set, three RM was just as effective as a ten RM. So three RM is nine seconds, roughly or so, uh, even maybe a little less, seven, eight, nine seconds, somewhere in there. Whereas a thirty, a, a ten rep is roughly 30 seconds and that's kind of like 30 to 50 somewhere in there 40 to 60 is what people talk about time under tension just doesn't doesn't pan out we showed identical time under uh, identical hypertrophy with vastly different times under tension where one would have a very short time under tension mm. you might want to look at the total time under tension of a session uh, of, of the muscle group per session so when we did that study that i talked about with the three reps we did seven sets of three. So the total time under tension actually somewhat evened out with the, if you look, if you multiply it seven times nine, mm. you'd have almost a minute where the other one would have a minute and a half or so. And thus you'd have your time under tension is starting to equate a lot more. 
but from a set perspective, anyone that says that there's like an ideal time under tension for a set to last, uh, no, that's, that would be contrary to what we know through the evidence. You heard it, you heard it here, bros. You still get people saying, sweat time retention. It's like a little more to than that. And sorry, you're, yeah, you're completely correct. Charles, one is for the whole saturation, whereas, you know, you were talking about the, the rep within the book. Um, rest periods. This was another one too. So, you know, for hypertrophy, you had to you know, keep them short, get the pump on. You know, if, if you start dropping off in your load, just lighten up the weights, keep, keep the volume up. But we, there was then the counter argument coming out that, you know, the fact that your rest period is so short, your actual whole volume is decreasing because you're not recovered enough. But then there can be an argument that there is, th- that, you know, there is time for both styles of training. So I don't know if you want to maybe um, give more of your thoughts on that. Yeah, so it's somewhat of a... Uh complex topic, but you're correct. And the evidence is, is that when this number of sets are the same as a general rule, your hypertrophy will be greater with longer rest or somewhat longer rest. So like when looking at, depends what you're talking short versus long, but like 30 seconds to one minute or so is short, considering that is short versus two to three minutes or so, which would be longer, your hypertrophy will be blunted uh, with the very short rest intervals, assuming you're doing the same number of sets. Now, a couple of caveats that, number one, that's generally looking at multi-joint moves. So the research that we carried out directly on the topic was using seven, uh, six out of the seven exercises were multi-joint, and you're going to have recovery time as far as the volume. And that really was what, at least hypothetically, what we speculate is the reason, because your volume goes down substantially. So with single-joint moves, the amount of volume doesn't go down nearly as much with shorter rest. You're going to get a much bigger drop in, uh, in volume from a set of squats that have a one-minute rest versus a set of leg extensions with a one-minute rest. So hypothetically, doing a single joint move with shorter rest intervals would not be impacted as much or perhaps not at all. And perhaps there could be certain benefits to that. The other thing that we, we have a study now that's in review that's real interesting where we uh, looked at the set equated um, effect of um of rest interval so one versus three minutes and the three minutes one out as far as the hypertrophy but then we also did another group which had the uh other uh so, so basically they had one we actually randomized arms and legs so it was within subject but like one leg would do uh three sets with uh three minutes rest the other one would do one minute rest but they would we would keep adding on volume to equate it to what the three with the three minute did, then there was no differences in hypertrophy. So now the thing is, is that when you're doing one minute rest, you have a lot more, you can still have the same session duration. One of the things with long rest, so if you're resting three minutes between sets, you're gonna be in the gym for a long period of time. So you can do actually the sets, the the session was shorter, the volume was equated with the one minute in less time than it took to do the three sets with three minute rest interval. So those are personal choices. Do you want to do more work in the gym? Because more sets is more work, uh, technically, if you're using work as the number of sets rather than the actual poundage lifting. Versus do you, uh, do you want to stay in the gym longer because of longer rest intervals? So. Yeah, and so you could you could kind of see like a, a little mean uh, caricature where like the left leg is just saying to the right, like, are you done yet? <laughs> That's very good. That's excellent. So it is. Uh, contraction types. Um, 
So a question I just have on that is you spoke about the, that stretch might have a potential hypertrophic effect. Have you, since, since the book came out, is there any more that you've looked into that? Well, when we talk about stretch, we're talking about loaded stretch, not just stretch, uh, you know, not just doing a static stretch. Uh, there was a paper that has come out, uh, after public, was after publication of my book, but, uh, they actually did show a benefit to loaded stretch in the calves. Um, I mean, we do know very, it's very clear in animal studies that chronic stretch and even intermittent, somewhat chronic stretch, which is loaded, like they'll take a bird's wing, uh, Joni Antonio, my colleague, uh, that was his dissertation work. He looked at hyperplasia versus hypertrophy, and they would tape up these birds' wings, these quails, and have their wings taped, with, and then they have little weights onto their wings. Not the most humane thing, but <laughs> in the name of science. And they had massive hypertrophy and hyperplasia, it was shown. Uh, so obviously in humans, you're not doing that. So it's, much, it's a different stretch outcome. Still needs to be studied. Um, like I said, the, uh, the one study that came out, I think it was a year or so ago, if I recall now, they looked at calves and they had one, one leg do a stretch, the other leg didn't, and the stretched leg did show greater hypertrophy. How that uh, translates into practice still remains to be determined. That is something that uh, my lab is planning to study, so stay tuned. You just mentioned hyperplasia there. Where are you in that thinking too? Because um, I know like, you know, the classic sort of old studies from Pear Tesh and they didn't really study, they just took biopsies and kind of were making conclusions often. And some people like they were, some people were saying that he came to not great conclusions. Um, you know, so some people were saying it is possible. Some people were saying, well, he can't say it is possible. Off the, you know, because they were like these people who just been born with more fibers. I think they were looking at bodybuilders versus general pop. Um, but what are your thoughts on hyperplasia? Like, do you do you believe that it is possible in humans? Have you seen any evidence for it? Because I think most of it's within animal uh, studies. You can. I do think it's possible in humans. Um, I think with uh, first of all with anabolic steroids, there is some evidence that anabolic steroids may drive more hyperplasia. That's, again, it's very difficult. One of the problems with that research, it's extremely difficult to count. You have to manually count the fibers. At this point, we're still in. We're in 1920s technology with that. There's no way that, to do that by computer yeah. analysis that I know of. I don't think there's been anything that's been invented very recently. Certainly that was the case. But far as I know, no one has come up with another thing unless it's been very recent and that's still in speculation. So you're still manually trying to count fibers. It gets extremely difficult to count all the fibers. Wow. Um, but there is some evidence in bodybuilders. Generally, it happens with extreme training protocols. Like I said, the bird's wing gets taped up, but that's not going to happen in humans. So my personal view is, is that, is it possible to happen in humans? Yeah, uh, but by the current type, outside of taking anabolics, by the current types of training programs that we have, I don't, um, I don't think it is a, I, I don't think it occurs to any, if it occurs, it would be in a very marginal to a very marginal extent. Yeah, yeah. I, mean, I read a paper, uh, Bill Kramer was one of the lead authors, and that was kind of the conclusion he came to. He says, if it does happen, it, it probably doesn't like, it probably doesn't like, um, g- g- yeah, give much more of an advantage if it, if it does happen at all in terms of overall hyper, hypertrophy. Uh, a question I actually really wanted to ask, it actually wasn't in my notes, and I, I actually was kind of saying something, I can't believe I forgot to ask this, but what, what is the story with myofibrillar hypertrophy 
and sacroplasmic hypertrophy because there's people coming out saying like this is horseshit there's no such thing as like you know sacromere versus uh, sacroplasm but still you still read about it in old textbooks even some authors still write about it and then some people say well it's not that like you know you just do this rep range this rep range and only that happens and in this it is and only that it's like it's there's kind of like a continuum where it maybe shifts in and out so could you maybe clarify that for some people yeah i mean there's certainly no evidence that you will just get fluid accumulation from so that like or specifically like a certain style high reps the the, the there was these myths that were promoted that if you train with high reps you're just pumping yourself full of water like a water balloon that's yeah yeah uh so it's actually a really interesting topic certainly sarcoplasmic hypertrophy occurs the question so basically in terms of the fact number one you get sarcoplasmic uh proteins that are added that's no obviously everyone knows that Uh, mitochondria and other proteins but um also you get Fluid, now glycogen attracts fluid, that would be a sarcoplasmic hypertrophic effect uh, in the muscle. Uh, and, and basically every time you add in contractile elements and proteins, you need to add water. Muscle is roughly 75% water. So you're gonna, the body needs, muscles need to have a stable environment. So generally they're gonna add water if they're gonna add proteins as well. The question is, do you add water over and above the contractile elements? That's still somewhat murky. Uh, certainly glycogen, like I said, would do that because you're getting other, uh, you're getting other osmolites involved. There is a new paper from a colleague of mine, uh, Cody Horn, a really good uh, up-and-coming researcher uh, out of Mike Roberts' lab. There's another with Mike is a total research stud. Mm. And um, they have some evidence that uh, sarcoplasmic hypertrophy may be occurring, that uh, some of the hypertrophy that has been noted might actually not be myofibrillar, but it would not be specific to a given training style. That's the caveat. Mm-hmm, that. mm-hmm. It doesn't mean that if you train the whole lightweight, weight, high, you know, high rep lightweight versus heavyweight low reps, that's not what we're talking here. Could that have an effect? I can't answer that. Yeah. Uh, you might want to make a point that um, high rep training may increase glycogen content to some greater extent. I think if you do, it would be fairly minor, but uh, you could also say cardio does that too. So that would be a, a reason to do more cardio and get more glycogen storage. So these are all nuances that are somewhat difficult to give you a concrete answer on. If you had asked me three months ago, I would say that it doesn't occur at all in the absence of adding in proteins with the new research from my colleague's lab, like I mentioned. I am certainly not saying an LA think this because their research wasn't that conclusive anyway it was basically saying hey we're not really sure you can only hypothesize and i'm more open to the possibility at this point that there could be sarcoplasmic growth occurring in the absence of contractile growth in the protein that's awesome great thanks so much for that brain information um and i'll get that what was that researcher's name again mike mike roberts mike roberts okay Percy cool Robert. yeah excellent cool. researcher Cody Hahn uh, just got his PhD out of that lab and he's a terrific researcher as well. Great, it's brilliant stuff. Training to failure. I know this is something you also like to to talk about. So could you maybe um, share with the listeners your your current thoughts on this? As far as is it necessary? Uh, Yes, sorry, I should be more clarified. Like, so I suppose, you know, as we all go through our evolution in this field, we're like, you got to train to failure. You You have to go to failure every set or else you won't grow. Well, I, I don't think there's any evidence that you should, 
that you need to go to failure every set. And I would say there's a potential downside to doing mm. that. That often can start to promote overtraining. I think that would be a very good uh, way to become overtrained, especially yeah. when you're doing higher volumes. So the question really becomes is, is some training to failure necessary? It's a uh, nuanced topic. And uh, my general thought has somewhat shifted a little over the years, kind of has wavered back and forth a little within somewhat of a fairly narrow range. But what I would say is, is that some failure probably is necessary, or, or when I say necessary, it's beneficial. Certainly you can get big without. When we're talking about necessary or beneficial, meaning does it get you extra hypertrophy over and above if you don't? So the first question is, well, if not, how far away are you stopping from hypertrophy? Because it's not an on-off switch. It's not failure. It is failure, no failure. So the failure is a one is is light switch on. Non-failure is a dimmer switch. So yeah. it's does one rep short of failure, two reps short, three reps, depending upon how many reps in the set. Uh, so no question you need to train with a high level of effort. So if you're just not challenged, if you're doing a 10 rep set and you're stopping at rep four, you're not going to get hypertrophy. You're just not challenging your body. So mm. you need to train with the caveat that you're going to need to train close to failure in the vast majority of sets. I would say that uh, having some sets taken to failure probably is beneficial. There's not still not good evidence research-wise. This is more now, but does not negative. The research against it is still very up in the air. What I would also say is, is that it's not, you have to also look at the particular exercises. So obviously training to failure will tap into your recovery. Uh, a set to failure of squats is gonna have much greater effects on your recovery abilities than a set to failure of leg extensions. Yeah. Set to failure of shoulder presses is gonna have to failure, uh, to failure will be a lot different than lateral raises. So your single joint, exercises will tend to lend themselves more to training the failure because you're not going to get beat up from that mm. both from a uh, systemic standpoint from a joint standpoint as well and um how often you should do it is still very up in the air like i said it's not even clear that you need to but what i would say usually is kind of last set to fail uh, take your last set to failure would be a general recommendation certainly doesn't even have to be every last set uh and that's the other the type of thing also that can be periodized as well mm. when i have super compensation phase where high volume super compensation i try to use uh, failure more liberally because you're really trying to i would say wreck the person you're trying you don't want to wreck the person but you want to really push that person to a level that they're not used to really push them like to the edge of a cliff yeah. And uh, that's it's a delicate balance as to how much you do that, but that would be my general. That that is my general guideline. Yeah, you wrote in your book about concurrent training, um, which is a topic I I am pretty interested in. It was a big subject in my physiology module this year, my master's. What what are the current um, or even your current thoughts around co concurrent training with hypertrophy? Specifically, you wrote about aerobic training versus hypertrophy because you hear a lot of people say, "Oh, it's going to destroy your hypertrophy gains." But th there is a, a an intelligent way to do it without you know ruining all your gains. Yeah, so it, it is a nuanced topic because really all of the topics are. My answer to almost everything you've said is depends. Much everything, yeah, you said it depends. <laughs> Uh, in untrained subjects, adding in cardio actually can 
the hypertrophic yeah. reaction yeah. benefits to it that wanes very quickly. In trained subjects, it then comes down to a balance. Now, there's reasons why adding in cardio may, at least to a limited extent, may be beneficial. It can help to add capillary density, which can help with nutrient exchange, potentially help with recovery to some extent, improve blood flow uh, into the working muscles, which enhances oxygen and nutrient delivery. But certainly doing too much of it, a lot of it is going to start to tap into your, uh, if nothing else, your energy reserves, which is mm, going to mm. effect, and your recovery ability. So it's a, uh, it's a tightrope that you have to walk, and there's no... I can't give a one-size-fits-all prescription. It'll have to do with the intent. So are you doing HIIT-type training, high-intensity interval training, or are you doing steady-state walking versus steady-state jogging versus steady-state even running? Yeah, yeah. Those are going to have different effects. And, and, the, mode, and the mode, too. Like, you know, cycling's completely well, different cycling. to running. and yeah. So, yeah, yeah there's, there's just a lot of things that there would, in my book I go into extensive detail about the literature – but as you've read my book, it's uh, the literature is still very much, we, we need more literature on the topic. Yeah. We actually, uh, our group has a paper uh, in review right now where we actually looked at that topic. We did a meta-analysis yeah. on uh, concurrent training. So we hope we have more on that soon. So there's like, we're, we're going to be short in time here. So like, there's tons of other questions I'd have for you. Like we haven't even gone into nutrition and like, you know, I want to even ask you about like hormones and it's for all about hypertrophy because apparently it's, it's not, you know, people are like hormones are the big deal there for a while. Like, well, we're not too sure on that, but uh, we, we can say that for another day. Cause this one question I did want to ask, um, does it, does a doctor call uh, Dr. Michael Scully who, um, does a lot of work around testosterone, but he was on a podcast, uh, I think under the bar, two guys from Australia and he was kind of on speaking about like how he believes like uh in the future of medicine how hypertrophy and strength training he believes are going to be big factors like they, they will merge with medicine like because he sees them as preventive uh, measures for aging you know hang on to muscle prevention of falls keeping our metabolism high but he had seen this uh he sees this also done in conjunction with steroid therapy so like basically men taking steroids and, and stuff like that but uh you're talking about testosterone replacement therapy you're talking yeah. about physiological dosages well yeah he well mainly it was just testosterone replacement but like he from now i'd have to go back and listen it was a long time ago but the the sense i got from was that he basically said that I, he wouldn't have a problem seeing people taking testosterone even at superlogical levels if it was just to get them to live longer better longevity and stuff like that but don't quote me on that i won't and i would say that i've not i'm not saying no but i've not seen any evidence that super physiological dosage of testosterone will do that. Certainly keeping testosterone TRT, there is a, a compelling or an emerging body of evidence that does show that having low T has negative effects on your health. So yeah, yeah, yeah. certainly occur with uh, testosterone therapy being a viable life, uh, uh, I don't say life saving, but a, uh, a life enhancing um, drug for mm. people that have low T. Yeah. But I've not seen any evidence that super physiological, that taking testosterone to the level that a pro bodybuilder, even just in very high dosages, would have positive effects. And I mean, it's, it's got to be a hormetic curve where you're going to yeah. see yeah. inverted U, and then you're going to see these beneficial effects that will then taper and then take too much, and it'll have negative. 
yeah, I mean, everything's on a bell curve, essentially. I mean, there's the diminishing return, obviously. But, uh, my, well, it wasn't so much more of a question, but I suppose, you know, you've, you've kind of mentioned many times during our conversation here that the research just hasn't been done, hasn't been done. And, like, if we really think about it, it's because, like, sports science just doesn't get the same funding as, like, cancer research and that. But, you know, when he was kind of mentioning, like, you know, this kind of filter more into medicine, that may allow then like more of a, an awareness of, you know, it actually is really important that we pump more money into like exercise research in terms of like medicine, health, longevity. So like, would, would you- uh, there is, I mean, so you're right that sports research, there's no, I don't say no funding, but certainly you're not getting government funding here in the States for that. Yeah. Uh, but for health related benefits, there's a lot of funding, potential funding available for yeah. resistance training and for exercise in general. So, uh, I mean, I have the uh, NIH grant out right now. We'll see what happens with it. Great. And resistance training. So there is, if it's involving health, there is, they're like the National Institute of Aging, where I have a grant out, and certainly many others will, will entertain those if it's going to have benefits on life. Great. And certainly, like you said, there's more and more evidence that resistance training does have major benefits as medicine. Yeah. Okay, uh, real quick fire ones, and then we'll, we'll go. What, what have been the biggest lessons you've learned so far in your life? Uh, always be skeptical, always be persistent, and uh, never be afraid to change your mind. Your top resource for the listeners, and it can be anything, book, course, okay. person, PubMed. PubMed, <laughs> you're such a scientist. Um, what, what is your top book recommendation? Science and development of muscle hypertrophy, of course. <laughs> well, that's a good, that's a good, it would depend upon what. Uh, so if you, it, let, let me rephrase it. If you had to give a book away as a gift to everyone in the world, like you said, I think this book will, will help people enhance their lives. I mean, you know, I can't even say that because it would depend upon what they're, where they're at and what their mindset is. So each, different sure. people need different books. So I wouldn't really. Uh, that's good. No, that's a fair answer. That's a fair answer. What are you currently reading right now? Um, a statistics book. I forgot. I'm not going to go run through my. <laughs> yeah, it's a book on stats on uh, the necessity of using confidence intervals and effect sizes, moving away from um, from a priori alpha testing. Uh, so basically, your p-value type testing, uh, and moving towards a magnitude-based uh, statistical inference testing. Great stuff. How do you learn? What are your ways for learning? Oh, multiple ways. I learn from my student. I learn from everyone. I, I, I think every day is a learning experience. So I learn from reading. I learn from uh, talking to my colleagues. Like I mentioned, Brett now and Brett Allen, I yeah. huge resources. I talk to them all the time. I learn from my students. I, I learn from everything I do. But to me, life is a one consecutive learning experience. So uh, almost certainly every day I'm learning something new and probably almost every hour yeah i've three more and then we're finished um is there any ritual or routine you have to do daily to make your to make your like that's just really important to make your day um have to i i never want to say have to but uh, my coffee in the morning is pretty damn i knew you were gonna say coffee i was like it's gonna be coffee that's good that's good um for whatever reason, maybe Elon Musk has figured out how to get off, off the, the planet, but you have 365 days left on Earth. How would you spend those 365 days? 
have to step up my research game and get every study that I ever wanted. I love it. I love it. You're just a man with a vocation. I love it. And then last but not least, I'm in town. Um, uh, and by I, the way, so I, I say that somewhat half-jokingly, but the other oh. thing is a lot of places in the world I'd still want to see. I'm very big on uh, different cultures and cool. different places. So I'd certainly want to, want to hit up some uh, cool destinations or countries that I haven't. Well, if you fancy coming to Ireland in that year, you're more, or you're, you have a home here. So actually, I just was invited to Dublin. So um, oh wow, looks like I will be there sometime next year. So. I wonder, Own Lacey, maybe was it Own Lacey? You know, I don't remember her name. I have the email. Which I'm could, could be it could be ISI Own Lacey, uh, but uh because uh, he brings out all the he had Eric Serrano over lately, and he he's friends with John Meadows and all the boys. Um. Final one. I'm in town and I say to you, Brad, I want to bring you for dinner and you can invite five people. And to this dinner, these five people can be dead or alive. Who would you bring to this dinner and why? Five people. Dead or alive? Well, certainly bring my father back. Um, wow. Um, Abe Lincoln. Yeah. Um, Abe's in my one, actually, yeah. With John F. Kennedy. I, I, boy, that's, you know, I'd have to really give it some... Uh, more thought when you ask me that there's just so many great people in the world yeah yeah um you know yeah it caught me off guard so i i'd have to really give that some thought um that's okay that's okay because you you know uh, (laughs) they're still great answers your father abe lincoln jfk anyone else but anyway even if you think about them later you can say i put them in the show notes there's no there's no uh, way i mean that would be something i'd really have to sit down and uh there's just so many great people. I probably have to think of a whole bunch and then weed out. Certainly, I want to bring my dad back. If I had one more day to, to you know, you don't realize when someone's gone, like all the things you want to talk to him about. Yeah. Certainly, he would be at the, at the top. And then from there, there's just uh, so many great individuals that uh, Albert Einstein definitely be one. Yeah. Yeah, that's great. Brad, listen, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. I know that you have to go now. And, uh, Thanks for making time and hopefully we can reconnect again. So I really appreciate it. So for all the listeners, thanks for listening. Take care, be well and stay strong. Mm-hmm.